Good morning, it's so great to see you here today. My name is Michael and I serve with our creative team. This week is CareFest, this Saturday. If you haven't yet found your project, jump online right now, wheatonbible.org slash carefest. You can find a project that matches your abilities. This is a great family event and a chance to reconnect with your church outdoors. If you're on campus today, you can stop in the atrium to pick up a shirt just like this. And if you're online, you can pick up your shirt on Tuesday between nine and five or on Saturday morning during the kickoff rally, both at our West Chicago campus. Please be praying this week for our teams and that God's love would be felt by those we're serving. Next up, we wanna celebrate new members in our church. See you at CareFest. that are coming in uh, as the crowds begin to make their way into our worship space this morning. We are praying that God will use today to speak to you, to speak to your heart, to minister to your soul. Some of you are here and you're going through some deep waters and we're praying that God will use this uh, to bless you today. We have the privilege this morning of honoring uh, and recognizing new members that are joining the church. I believe it's a group around 40. A lot of people have been joining Wheaton Bible Church lately. That's been really cool. And because of COVID, we can't have them all up here like I would like to do. <clears throat> but you can see the pictures behind me. And like everybody else has gone through the uh, new member uh, process, these people have uh, attended classes. They've memorized the book of Leviticus and the book of Romans. Not really. Um, and they have made uh, strong commitments to support uh, the ministries of the church as we all do as members and part of the body here at Jesus Christ. It's what makes the local church so beautiful when we all partner uh, together. So I want you to join me in recognizing these new members. Would you do that? And if you are interested, uh, you can uh, check wheatonbible.org uh, and you, you can see the slash there if you'd like to be a part of the next uh, go-round with the members. Thank you, and uh, Father, bless us now as we turn to you. Use this worship, use this morning, the ministry of your word to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, Week Bible Church. Can we stand together? Begin our time lifting one voice. To God who is meeting us in this place today, who is worthy, worthy of our songs. Come on, we sing this out. This is it. Come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry.
Psalm 1, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There was a time not too long ago where that psalm was my comfort. I was walking through a very painful situation with my family. We were going through just a deep, deep valley of extreme loss and grief. And there were nights that all I could do was cry out to God. All I could do was sit in that darkness and cry out. And I remember I would open my Bible and I'd just read that psalm over and over. And the comfort and the peace that it brought me was just unlike any other. And something that I learned in that time and that I was reminded of in that time is that the presence of God is unlike any presence. You know, the presence of God surrounded me. And I knew that I was not alone. And I knew that because of that presence, I could not be shaken. That it did not matter what came, it didn't matter what happened next, it didn't matter if nothing got better, but because of the presence of God, I could stand firm I could not be shaken. You know, I think, I think probably most of you can relate to me. Most of you have had those nights where all you can do is cry out, Lord, where are you? And I hope that most of you have experienced that presence. I hope all of you have experienced that presence because it's unlike any other presence. Psalm 125 says, the righteous cry out. Just as, Mount, the, just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people. Just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people. That's the promise of his presence that we have right now. That's the promises of, of his presence that we have on the mountaintop and in the darkest valley. He surrounds you. So we're gonna sing a song. This is an original song that our team wrote. And if you resonated with anything that I just said, if you resonated with um, feeling alone, if you know what it's like to walk through a valley, this song is for you. This song is for you to declare over your life. This song is for you to declare over your circumstance. And I just want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone. The song is called Surround Me.
And so, Father, we come to you this morning, and that is our prayer, that we would be still, because you know us in your Son. We marvel at the life you have given us. We marvel at the love you have for us. But Father, we want to be honest and we want to confess to you that often we are not still on the inside at all. We are scattered, we are stressed. Uh, we are burdened. We are sad. And we pray in light of what we have just sung that you would fill us by your spirit. That we might know this peace, this rest, this stillness. As Isaiah says, in repentance and rust, there is salvation. In quietness and trust, there is strength. Would that be true? So we confess to you our lack of rest, our lack of trust. And we ask that you would not only forgive us, but you would cleanse us and change us, that we can be your people, living on your mission for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen. You may be seated. Today we are in for a treat because we begin a series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a series on the subject of love, a series we're calling Love Unfiltered, because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not only the greatest description of love in the Bible, it's the greatest description of love in human history. And chapter 13 is so very practical, it's so very important. Uh, because love, I mean your love, not your fame, not your fortune, is your greatest opportunity in life. And the absence of love will be your greatest omission. After all, uh, love is primary because we are most like Jesus when we are loving. We are least like Jesus when we're not. Years ago, society realized that orphanages for babies just didn't work. Too many babies were dying. Too many babies were getting sick. Too many uh, babies would uh, grow up with all sorts of psychological and, and, and social issues. Why? Because from the moment a baby is born, that baby needs to be held. That baby needs to be hugged. That baby needs to be attended to. That baby needs to be talked to. That baby needs a mother in short, that baby needs love. 
your love for your friends, your love for your family, your, your love for your church is what makes friends, family, churches thrive. And it's the absence of our love, the withdrawal of our love, the distancing from love uh, that makes them die. Love is not only the music of the universe, and it is that, it is the music of life. It is not only how God in his goodness will restore the heavens and the earth, it's how God continues to restore broken human hearts today. And I cannot think of a better passage to be in, to hear from God on this critical subject of love than 1 Corinthians 13. Now, what I'm going to do today, this is a seven-week series, and I'm going to just introduce it. I'm merely going to set it up. We're going to look at the first three verses, and I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about God, I want to talk about the Corinthians, and I want to talk about you. So would you stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13? If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only, only merely a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You may be seated. So let's start with God. Christianity teaches that the center of the universe is not a single person God, but a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who has eternally existed in unceasing, perfect, compassionate love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit adore each other. They delight in each other. Uh, they honor and treasure each other. And this is huge for us as we begin a series on love because what that means is that God is the source of love. And God is the model of love. Heaven is a world of love. And creation, I mean everything you see, everything you enjoy is the overflow of that divine love. God's love, therefore, is other-centered. It is outgoing. It is compassionate. Vividly revealed in the beauty of creation. Vividly demonstrated in the advent of Jesus Christ, who willingly left the splendor of heaven to become a man in order to die on the cross uh, for our sins, for our lack of love, in order to restore and to renew. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, what we see over and over, beautiful pictures, beautiful descriptions of God's love. One of my favorites is found in Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then 
Just as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on those who fear him. Friends, this is the Old Testament. Contrary to our, our, our thinking today, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament is not hard, he's not harsh, he's not aloof, uh, but he's tender, he's forgiving, he's compassionate. Uh, that's what Psalm 103 is telling us. Now I want to jump to a New Testament passage and I want you to notice the connect or the connection between the love of God and the advent of Jesus Christ. Familiar words, for God so loved. Now notice the word so. God's love is infinite. God's love is immeasurable. God's love is perfect. For God infinitely loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save. Think love to love the world through Jesus. And so as we look at these passages, as we look at multiple passages, and multiple stories in the Bible, what we discover, and I want you to hear me in this, is the essence of God is not power, but love. And shouldn't that just possibly be true in our lives as well? That it's not our power, it's not our fame, it's not our fortune, it's not this. But that's our love. Uh, that is ultimate. It's, it's our, our love uh, that is uh, primary. Now, in, in the Bible, love is not just a concern for others, uh, because sometimes that can be a distant concern, uh, but rather love is a disposition of our heart where we hold another person dear to us. And as followers of Christ, as we travel through life, we hold an increasingly large number of, number of people dear to us. And the good news of the gospel, John 3, 16 and 17, is in Jesus Christ you have become dear to God. Just as the Father has compassion on his children, I mean, think of a mother with a baby. Think of uh, newlyweds that are madly in love with each other. Or think of a wife of 65 years sitting by the bedside of her dying husband. And multiple, multiply each of those times infinity. And you start to get close to how dear how precious you are to the living God. Now, the reason I start our series on 1 Corinthians 13 with God is because it's only in seeing the depth of God's love for you, the depth of God's love for me, that you and I will become loving. We can't get there any other way. People that are loving are people that know they are loved. Uh, believers that are, are, are loving are believers that are alive. And the, uh, the dynamic, the mystery, the, mystery, the uh, uh, majesty of God's love for us in, in Christ. 
And I say that because love doesn't make any sense if God doesn't exist, right? Or God isn't loving. It doesn't make any sense for you to sacrifice for others, for you to disadvantage yourself to the advantage of others, which is what love is. It's disadvantaging ourselves to the advantage of others. It makes no sense if God doesn't exist and God isn't loving. But if God does exist and God is loving, and his loving is perfect and supreme, eternally existent in the context of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then love is not only primary, it's the way we glorify God. I mean, isn't this why Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22 that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? And he tells us the second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love. Isn't this why Paul ends this chapter? I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13 by telling us it's not faith, it's not hope, it's love that is the greatest virtue. Love, as we will see over and over in this uh, series, the love talked about here beginning in verse uh, 4 in, in our chapter, is ultimately a description of God's love. And when we see that, it begins to come alive in our hearts. It's a description of God's love. And it's a description of what people who are alive in that love, captured by that love, basking in that love, look like what people who know the love of a bleeding and dying Savior. And my point is simply, we cannot get to what Paul is going to call us to in this passage apart from being captured by the beauty of God's love. To know that no one loves me like Jesus and to know that at the core of our being. So now let me go on and let me move from talking about God to talking about the Christians, uh, Corinthians. I'm not going to leave God behind though, okay? I promise I won't do that. And I'm going to say some things now that maybe you've never thought about relative to what we have in this beautiful, well-known chapter. So let me just start with the obvious. 1 Corinthians 13 is a favorite chapter for weddings. I did hear in first service, I only heard women say that. I did hear a couple guys. So it's a favorite chapter for weddings, and it, it should be. But often when we simply hear these words like uh, read at a wedding or in a different context, we fail to appreciate the larger context of 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, the book of Corinthians. So we fail to miss what goes on in the first 12 chapters and the last three chapters after uh, uh, this chapter. And we fail to capture or, or understand the story because the story of this letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians is really a sad story. Because these people were broken, dysfunctional people. And this church at Corinth was a broken, dysfunctional church. So chapter 13, now follow me, instead of being words of comfort, are words of rebuke. Words of warning. 
Now, let me explain. Let me unpack that. You see, Corinth was one of the largest cities in the first century world. It was a commercial powerhouse. It was in southern Greece, and it was at both a, a crossroads in terms of water and a crossroads in terms of interstate highways as they had them back in the day. And like major cities uh, around the world today, it drew brilliant people. It drew uh, people um, who knew how to make money and wanted to make more money. Uh, people that were smart, people that were hardworking, um, uh, people that uh, were attractive, and people that knew how to draw a crowd. And so the city of Corinth, because it was a wealthy city and because people came not just to live but to, to find wealth, uh, was full of amazing people. But the city of Corinth was notoriously corrupt, decadent. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, people in the first century world took the noun Corinth, turned it into a verb to Corinthianize, which meant to live without morality, no boundaries, especially sexual morality. And so a couple of years ago, I was involved in uh, co-leading a trip on Paul's first missionary journey. And we, went, we were in Greece, and we were in Turkey, and then we were back again in, in Greece looking at some of these cities where Paul planted churches. And as Rhonda and I stood uh, among the ruins of first century Corinth, and by the way, the archaeology there is absolutely fascinating. We were there um, where they had been uncovering for a while now a church that dates back to the first century. It could have been the, uh, the church where these people would uh, be gathering because right now this is a young church as Paul pens uh, this letter. But anyways, uh, there was a brilliant woman that was talking about the archaeology and the history of, of Corinth, and then she went on at length about the extent of sex trafficking and all the evils associated with that that took place in ancient Corinth. But God is a God of love, right? Okay. Let me. God is a God of love, right? Right. Amen. So you travel through the book of Acts and you come to Acts chapter 18 and you discover in Acts chapter 18 that the Apostle Paul himself is in Corinth. Now that's prior to writing this letter. And God shows up and God speaks to the Apostle Paul and God says in effect to the Apostle Paul, Paul, I want you to park it. I want you to stay here in Corinth. Paul does for a year and a half. I want you to plant a church. Because these are people that desperately need the gospel, and there are people here that I love. And so Paul did, and Paul planted a, a church or a network of churches. And people came to Christ and began to grow in Christ. And look what Paul says the people that made up this church were like. Let's go back to chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor uh, 
Um, let me see, I'm having trouble reading this. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the point. Verse 11 is the point. And such were some of you. And now when you read that, be careful. Uh, there's a lot of descriptors there that describe me before I came to Christ. And my point is, uh, the Corinthians were not nice, moral people before they came to Christ. I certainly wasn't. As other people have pointed out, now we're talking not just about the city, but we're talking about the church. This church was unique among all of Paul's churches because on the one hand, it was by far the most talented. On the other hand, it was by far the most troubled. I mean, as I said, these are successful people, movers and shakers in the marketplace, people with abilities and gifts who knew how to get things done. I mean, that's the way big cities are. Big cities attract those kind of people like downtown uh, Chicago. But on the other hand, boy, did these people have problems. Boy, were these people troubled. And if you read Corinthians is just amazing. I mean, Paul is just getting started in chapter 1, and he rebukes uh, the Corinthians for their elitism, for their divisiveness, for saying, hey, we like this leader, but we don't like this leader. We're going to follow this guy, but we want one thing, nothing to do with this other church leader. Then in chapter 3, Paul uh, rebukes the Corinthians for their jealousy, for their worldliness in chapter 4, for their extreme arrogance. In chapters 5 and 6, for their sexual sin. Uh, for the fact that they were suing each other, bringing lawsuits against each other in the church. And then as you travel through the end of the book, uh, for corrupting communion, for cheating, for um, abusing spiritual gifts. Highly talented, highly troubled, unique in that way among Paul's churches. Now that is what will enable us to appreciate verses 1, 2, and 3. So let's go back, look at verse 1. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, he's talking about speaking in tongues. And apparently, a number of people in Corinth were able to do that. And we go to verse 2, and he amps it up a little. He talks about the gift of prophecy, uh, declaring the word of God. Think of the Old Testament prophets and, and more, and people that were able to unravel mysteries, and people that had all, all sorts of knowledge gifts. And then there, he talks about faith. And what I want you to see in verse 2 is this is just not normal run-of-the-mill stuff. These are extraordinary gifts. I mean, the way he describes faith, it's a faith that can move mountains, is visionary leadership faith. These are leadership gifts, and apparently they were given in abundance by the Spirit of God to the church in Corinth. And so Paul talks about these gifts that are mentioned here in verses 1 and 2 in the previous chapter, chapter 12. We'll talk about them again in chapter 14 because they were so important and central to the life of the church in Corinth. Corinth was Paul's most gifted church. Amazingly gifted. These were attractive people. These were people that drew a crowd. These were people uh, that uh, other people looked up to. They, they were respected people. And then we come to verse 3. 
And apparently in Corinth, there were people that were radically generous, wonderfully generous, and people that were enduring all sorts of persecution, rejection, whatever, um, for, for the gospel. They were experiencing hardship. But let's go back. Look at what all Paul also says. Paul says, man, you can speak with the tongues of men or angels. And if you don't have love, you're like a resounding gong that uh, goes off in idol temples when an idol worshiper does an act of worship and uh, sounds the gong to draw attention to what he or she has just done. And Paul says, man, you can have this gift and you can do these things, but without love, you're hollow. In verse 2, at the end of the verse, look, you can have these extraordinary gifts without love. You are nothing. Verse 3, And these are virtues here in verse 3. You can do this, you can live this way, but without love, he says, you gain nothing. Do you see? This is essential to understanding this love chapter. Paul is dropping a bomb. He is saying you can be all these things and not be a Christian. Paul is warning the church at Corinth to get their priorities straight, to get their act together. Now, Paul is not against success. He's not against gifts. Paul spoke in tongues. Paul had the gift of prophecy. Paul had the gift of knowledge. Paul, talk about enduring hardship. No, what Paul is saying is talent without character, hype without heart, gifts without grace, leadership without love, is a big, fat zero in the kingdom of God. And I don't think many of us, when we come to Corinthians, appreciate, or chapter 13, I should say, uh, appreciate the context. Now, please don't misunderstand. My point is not to read this at weddings, okay, women? I am not saying do not read this passage of weddings. It's a beautiful passage. What I am saying is is that chapter 13 is not merely a cushy, soft love poem that one day Paul wrote when he was inspired sitting outside and drinking his Starbucks. This is a rebuke. It's a warning. And if like the Corinthians, you're bound up in jealousy, you're, you're bound up in bitterness, or you're, uh, you're arrogant, and you're, you're confident that you have all these things going for you, or you're, you're, you're full of anxiety, you're full of anger. Uh, if your ministry, and he's talking about ministry, if your ministry is all about you, then you need to examine whether or not you actually are a Christian. This is exactly what Jesus says. 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Isn't Judas, Jesus' disciple, a great illustration of this? I mean, uh, Judas knew all the miracles. Judas participated in all the ministry. Uh, and, and the apostles were told at different points in the, the gospels had the ability to cast out uh, demons, uh, sometimes, sometimes not. And maybe Judas had experienced um, uh, exercising some miraculous gifts. We don't know for sure. It's speculation. But what we do know is Judas never gave his heart to Jesus. And so he betrayed Jesus, and he was condemned to hell. Gifts, talents, abilities, what we call blessings, are sometimes like nice clothes or really nice jewelry, and they adorn your body but they lack the ability to transform your heart, to change you spiritually. You see, you can experience spiritual transformation, and you will, you will live a moral life. But you can live a moral life and never be transformed from the inside out. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I'm done with the show. I'm done with the splash. We have neglected love. And this is so important for us today in, in our modern culture. Now, let me move on. Let me talk about you. And I want to apply this to two different groups of people. First, uh, to the King Saul's among us. And by that I mean to those of you that have gifts. And you know you have gifts and you've had some very positive experiences. And let me remind you that King Saul in the Old Testament was Israel's first king. And he was chosen by God in part because he had all the potential in the world, although God knew his heart. I mean, we are told he was handsome, he was tall, he was a man's man, he was a, a leader of leaders, uh, he was the kind of guy that people looked up to and loved to be around. And so he becomes king, and over time, his heart gets divided, and we are told he had a huge battle with jealousy. He couldn't get comfortable in his own skin and God's plan for his life. And so there were a couple major times in, Paul, in Saul's life where he ignored God's word. He disobeyed God. And it got worse and worse and Saul ended up committing suicide. Huge gifts, no heart. Talented, but troubled. 
And I want to say to you that are gifted, to you that are successful, uh, both outside the church and inside the church, you've got a great Bible study going, you're doing this or that, be careful. Because you can begin to think God is blessing me because I'm good, and you can begin to think it's all because of who you are, because it's so easy for us to tether our identity to our circumstances, to our successes, to this Bible study, to to that, to the amount of stuff we do. And over time, we obliterate the grace of God in our hearts. And so let me say, if you are neglecting a consistent prayer life, if you are neglecting a consistent devotional life, if you tend to sit in judgment on others or sit in judgment on the church or distance yourself from the church, if you are a person that harbors grudges and some of the other things are going on in your heart that we talked about, if you are a person that does not strive to lay hold of the living God and bask in the majesty of God's love, then Paul says, you are an empty gong. And man, I don't want that for you. I do not want that for you. So, the second group of people I want to speak to are the Gideons among us. Those of you that are reluctant to enter into ministry, those of you that aren't very confident that you have a lot to offer other people spiritually in terms of gifts. Now, Gideon in the Old Testament was the antithesis of Saul because Gideon was convinced that he had nothing going for him spiritually. Uh, That, as I I just said, he, he was incompetent that his gifts would never help. So God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, I got a plan for your life. And Gideon is completely reluctant. As a matter of fact, he turns in the other direction like Jonah and he hides. And that's the way some of you are. You're reluctant to engage. Uh, You're you're discouraged. You you see other people being used by God and you think, you know, uh, that's just not me. And you get... Man, you get discouraged. You're insecure. And so I'm saying some of you are like King Saul. Some of you are like Gideon. But both of you have fallen into the same trap. You've just fallen into the trap from opposite ends. And the trap is that you are focused on your gifts, on who you are, your platform or your lack of platform, either uh, your giftedness or your lack of giftedness instead of being focused on the grace of God. And if you're here and you're a Gideon, you say, yeah, that's like me. I'm reluctant. I'm discouraged. I don't think I have much to offer. Let me remind you, Paul's point is it's not your giftedness. It's your godliness expressed in love. And you pursue godliness. And you will be amazed at how God uses you. Nothing, nothing, and this is my point, is more important than God's love. Nothing, nothing is more important than you knowing how much God loves you, the depth, the extent of God's love. 
And to the extent you and I get that, we seek that, we strive to live in light of that. You know what happens? God, the Holy Spirit works in our lives as we see this bleeding and dying Savior and we meditate on his love and we become more and more loving as we travel through life. And that's what Paul wants for the Corinthians and that's what I want for you. Let's pray. Father, take your word and heal our hearts. Take your word and help us to uh, uh, reprioritize life. I pray for my brothers and sisters that, that are here, the children, the students, the, the adults. It's so easy for us to live according to our circumstances. God, would you deliver us from that addiction? And would you enable us to see the beauty, the tenderness, the gentleness, the compassion of our Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Let's stand together and sing this song back to a God who is love. It's an anthem song. Our response.
Good morning. Uh, my name is John Walker, and I'm truly honored to uh, serve as chairman of your elder board. And today we have an uh, important update on our journey together as a church. Uh, as you recall, in March of 2020, Pastor Rob announced to the congregation his intention to retire from his role as senior pastor, effective <laughs> This year. Did I say something wrong? I just went like that. Oh. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I'm very insecure up here. When you laugh like that, that just throws me totally off. So it'll take me 40 or 50 minutes to recapture myself. So in June of last year, our we began our search for our new senior pastor, a leader who we're looking for that deeply loves God, will deeply love us and whom we will deeply love in return. The commitment of the search committee and the elder board has been to faithfully seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in this important undertaking, supported by your prayers for wisdom, peace, and unity. 
And it has been exciting to sense God working in our hearts and working through this process to bring us his provision and his timing. Now there's been some turbulence along the way. God has opened doors and, and God has closed doors. But I'm happy to announce that the search committee and the elder board are completely of one heart, one mind, and one voice and recommending to the congregation of Wheaton Bible Church that we call Hannibal Rodriguez as our next senior pastor. Welcome Hannibal and Heidi, his wonderful wife. Uh, so of course, we want you to join us in the next steps of this journey. And at this time, uh, our Elder Jim Getz, Chairman of the Search Committee, will outline those next steps and how you can participate. That will be followed by a word from Pastor Hannibal and then Pastor Rob will lead us in prayer. As we continue our journey together as a church, we want to praise God for his sovereignty and his loving provision in this process. Uh, we especially want to praise him for Rob's faithful proclamation of the gospel for 27 years. Uh, we also want to praise God and uh, just give him the glory for the work of our staff. It's been one crazy year. Can we all agree on that? <laughs> and our staff has faithfully sought him and considered this transition along with all of us. They've been praying, they've been serving, and uh, we are so grateful for our staff. We are especially grateful for God's work through your elder board, through your search committee, and through our lay coalition, who throughout this journey have sought to bring us together, to bring us to God, and to join in this journey. I especially encourage you along the way here at our next steps, that you would reach out to those who are your friends, who are elders and on the search committee and the lay coalition, and hear their testimony of how God has worked through the closed doors and the open doors. And we want to thank you, the congregation, for your part in this journey. Your prayer, your heart for our church, your heart for God have been evident throughout. So we're very grateful uh, for God's faithfulness and journey. And we are especially grateful for God's call on Heidi and Hannibal together. They are one heart and one mind too, in case you were wondering. And you'll, and you'll hear from Hannibal in just a minute. 
our next steps together. We want all of you to join. To help you in these next steps, we're going to send everybody a letter and an email, uh, and we want you to uh, join in this journey in a couple of wonderful ways. First of all, join us on May 7th, the evening of Friday, May 7th, 7.30 here in West Worship for an interview night with Heidi and Hannibal. We want to interact with them with joy and with, with some questions, and we're hoping that you can join us for that. We will have a, an all-church prayer night on May 12th, Wednesday, May 12th. And we will have two town hall meetings, one on Tuesday, May 11th, and one on Thursday, uh, uh, May 13th. And there we can uh, celebrate the process, but also answer any questions you have uh, about our journey. And, and then we get to the vote on May 16th at 2.30, Sunday, May 16th. Uh, Lord willing, a, as God takes us in that journey, we would see uh, Hannibal transition to be senior pastor on, on August 1st. And in September, we'll celebrate the ministry of Rob and Rhonda. So that's our journey. We want you all in. And now, a few words from Hannibal. So after that, welcome, a beautiful applause from you guys. I feel that I got to say, you get a TV, you get a TV, you get a TV. <laughs> that was not part of the script. I've had the honor and the privilege to serve in this church for a little bit more than 16 years. Both of my daughters grew up here. My wife and I have grown in this church in so many different areas. We have found in this church an amazing community. Our best friends and our families are part of this church. Uh, we have seen here the power of the gospel time and time again. We have seen here the power of the spirit here time and time again. It has been a blessing for me at a personal level to be part of this amazing team that we call Wheaton Bible Church. It has been a blessing for me to see how the Lord has sustained us all as a church throughout the years, how he has been our shelter and our fortress in times of trouble, how he has uh, been with us in the little things and in the big things, how faithful he has been and is, how powerful he has been and is, uh, and what he could do with broken people like all of us. Because of that, if this is what the Lord has for me, if the congregation chooses to vote for me, I will step into this position trusting, trusting that God is sovereign, good, powerful, and loving, trusting that he will complete what he already started with us, trusting that uh, the success of this church does not rest in the craftiness of men, um, but in the power of the gospel and the presence of the Spirit. Trusting that the Lord loves this church much more than any of us. Trusting the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the scripture. Trusting that he has placed here an amazing team and what we need, we already have. And trusting that the Lord placed this church here for his glory, our joy, and the flourishing of our communities. If this is what the Lord has for me and the congregation chooses to work for me, it will be my honor to serve the church to the best of my abilities and to exercise sacrificial love, to be a servant leader, to be a pastor, and uh, to the best of my abilities, to be a friend, and to be a team player, all for the glory of God. Amen. So would you 
Join me in praying for Hannibal and Heidi and their daughters. Father, we celebrate today the way you have been working in Hannibal and Heidi's life from the moment of their birth until now. For the last 16 years of ministry, you've given Hannibal among us here at Wheaton Bible Church. I thank you for the privilege I've had of working so closely with him and seeing his heart for you, his heart for the gospel, his heart for the word, his heart for other people. And Father, I come to you today with a confidence that I believe is, is from you in Hannibal as a man, Hannibal's ministry, Hannibal's gifts, his family, his marriage. And we ask that you would make this an extraordinary run, that he would have an incredible ministry by the Spirit and for your glory, that you would show us how we can surround him and encourage him. We pray for a successful congregational vote. We pray, God, that that would go well, that Hannibal would launch well, that you, we would be amazed as we look back at all the things you have done over the years through Hannibal and Heidi. Father, we thank you as Hannibal has just said that you love this church. We thank you for uh, the opportunity for new leadership and a new preaching team and all of that. And I ask God you do extraordinary things, wonderful things. And we want to give you the glory because you are the king and Jesus is the head of the church. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now may God bless all you guys. You have a great day. Let's give it up for Hannibal and Heidi. Thank you.